Good morning, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Wouldn't it be great if we were gathered together? We can't be, but we are united together. We have the Holy Spirit that knits us together as one in the body of Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit as our teacher this morning. And uh, before we dive into a passage that we're going to read together and study and try to apply in our lives, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do unite us together as one. We are indeed the body of Christ, even though we uh, are in our homes and in other places as we listen to and try to study this text. God, would you help us? Would you clear away any distractions that would keep us from understanding the message you want for us to receive? God, be our teacher now. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, we are going to dive right into a text this morning that has a lot to teach us, uh, that has a lot to help us in the midst of our struggles. And we're going to start by reading in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. This is the word of God. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. This woman, of course, is the church, Old Testament, New Testament church. This child, of course, is Jesus. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That's the language of Psalm 2 describing the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. It's a three and a half year period that's mentioned several times in scripture. Every time it's mentioned, it's described as that period in which the people of God are persecuted. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the devil, was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Again, this is the word of God. And wow, <laughs> wow, there is a battle going on. Do you get that? A spiritual battle. It's a battle between the woman and the dragon. It's a battle between angels and demons and good and evil and life and death and heaven and hell and God and the devil. And it's a real battle, a desperate, desperate battle. And it matters more than you or I can possibly imagine. John says it is terribly important that his readers, 
that followers of Jesus understand some things about this battle. You must expect your life to involve spiritual battles so that when it happens, you're not discouraged or overcome by it. Let me ask you a question. Do you find that your life is ever difficult because you follow Jesus? Is it a challenge sometimes following Jesus? You know, things happen, difficult things, things you can't control, things you can't fix, even things you didn't cause. Well, John says, you shouldn't be surprised. Expect this to happen. After all, you're in a spiritual battle. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over my years in ministry where somebody says something to the effect of, you know, it's really hard to make my marriage work. Or it's really hard to parent these children and to do that well. Or it's really hard to be patient with the people around me. Or it's really hard to follow Jesus and to love people well at work, in school, wherever it happens to be. And I think to myself when I hear those things, yeah, of course it is. It's hard to grow character. I mean, it's hard to resist sin. It's hard to die to self. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard because it's all done in the context of a real spiritual battle, a battle with forces that are far stronger, far, far stronger than you or me. Why would we expect it to be easy? And John talks about the dragon here, the devil who opposes God and opposes God's people. And then in chapter 13, which we'll read parts of, uh, we are introduced to two more beasts. And these, uh, these beasts, one comes from the sea, one comes from the earth. And these beasts work together to serve Satan and his purposes and his kingdom, and they work to deceive the world. They make life miserable for anyone wanting to follow God. Uh, the second beast, uh, we read about him in Revelation 13, starting in verse 16. It says, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. These chapters uh, teach us a good deal about evil and about its opposition to God. And in this message, I want to examine some of the strategies that the evil one uses against us against people trying to follow Jesus. I want to discuss how we are to respond and not respond to his evil attacks. In other words, how do we do spiritual battle? And so first, let me just kind of give a pastoral word about what we are not to do, if I can. Uh, it's popular in some circles, Christian circles, to speculate about the identity of the Antichrist. Is he here? Who is he? When will he come? Uh, the Antichrist is oftentimes uh, identified with this first beast that's mentioned here in Revelation 13. And uh, there in that text, it, it says, And the dragon, that's the devil, stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. That's just a picture of power. That's a picture of wholeness and power, and in this case, evil power. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, 
but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. A miracle was done. That's a, a coming back to life kind of miracle for this beast. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast. And they asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now, very often this text is identified as the one that describes, most describes the Antichrist. This servant of Satan, he leads and he deceives the nations. Uh, people, Christians speculate or have speculated about who this is. Uh, in this past week, I perused some books, some articles, some things on the internet about the Antichrist, and you would not believe what I came across. Uh, here's a list of some of the names that people have speculated about, some of the people that have been identified as the Antichrist in the last 75 years, okay? Mussolini, the Antichrist. Hitler, the Antichrist. Stalin, the Antichrist. John Kennedy, the Antichrist. Ronald Wilson Reagan, because he's got three names and each name has six letters in it, 666. Michael, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, you remember him? The guy with the thing on the forehead, clearly satanic. Uh, Saddam Hussein, Yasser Arafat, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, President Obama, President Trump, all kinds of speculations trying to identify the Antichrist. Who will he be? When will he come? And here's a quote. Uh, I found this. Uh, there is no doubt. Get that. No doubt. There is no doubt the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. He'll be this beast described in Revelation 13.1. Would you like to know who said that? Well, that was Bishop Martin of Tours in 397 AD. So that would make the Antichrist over 1600 years old. And so he should be easy to identify when he comes up out of the sea because he'll be pretty pickled. Anyway, just saying. Now, friends, I've said this kind of stuff before, but the Bible strongly discourages foolish speculation when it comes to identifying people with certain apocalyptic images. When we do this, and then they turn out to not be true, uh, we damage the credibility and the reputation of the gospel, of the word of God. It's a bad practice. It's not helpful. Uh, it's been wrong in this case, trying to identify the Antichrist. It's been wrong every time it's been done. Now, uh, what is more, it, it causes us to miss John's main message in this text, which I fear many Christians do miss. Um, and that is that spiritual warfare is a very real and present danger. It was then, and it still is today. You see, when John uses the term Antichrist, we need to understand that he's describing something or someone who was working in his day, the first century A.D., uh, he was not referring to something that wouldn't happen yet for thousands of years to come. Uh, kind of quick quiz here. You can take this at home in your family room. How many times does the term Antichrist appear in the book of Revelation? Take a guess. Tell someone. Be accountable. The answer is zero. 
Zero. Because that's, uh, it, this term Antichrist appears nowhere specifically in the book of Revelation. The term actually is only used four times in the Bible, every time by the Apostle John. Uh, it's used three times in John's little letter, we call it 1 John, and one time in John's even smaller letter, uh, which we call 2 John. And it's uh, always used to refer to something that's going on back in John's day. In other words, first century AD. For example, 1 John 2.18, it says, Dear children, this is John writing, Dear children, the last hour is here. We are in the last hour right now. John was then, we're still in that hour right now. He says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already, get this, many such Antichrists have appeared. Plural. There are many such Antichrists. From this, he says, we know that the end of the world has come and we are living right now at the end of the world. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, John says this, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Such a person is uh, the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. Uh, again, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, he says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist was present in John's day. It's present in our day. And then lastly, 2 John 7, John says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person, anyone who does not acknowledge Jesus is the Christ, any such person is the deceiver in the Antichrist. These texts help us to understand with some clarity that this, this idea of Antichrist is John's term for someone or something, any, any someone or any something that opposes Jesus Christ and does not acknowledge who Jesus actually is. You see, the evil which was present in John's day and is present in our day is the spirit of the Antichrist. So, it's things like terrorists. Terrorists killing, torturing, threatening people to intimidate them into submission. Uh, it's, it's drug lords. It's people who bring physical or mental abuse to bear on others. It's despotic dictators. It's greedy capitalists who exploit others for personal gain. It's anyone who knowingly or unknowingly does the work of Satan. That's the Antichrist. And there are lots of them. And you see, the church gets to figure out as we go along in whatever era of the church we're talking about, the church gets to figure out how in a world with people and powers who hate and oppose Jesus, do you love and serve those people in Jesus' name? How in a world like that do you cling to and hold on to hope? Well, that's what the church, that's what we get to do. Now understand, John's writing to a world that, um, uh, where, where people are struggling every day with very real, palpable, personal expressions of evil. And so John uses very dark image in these two chapters, uh, dark images, chapter 12, chapter 13. He writes about a dragon, for example, a dragon who's attacking God's people, who's opposing God's plan. And then in chapter 13, he uses the images of two more beasts, 
to illustrate that this world and its kingdom and its governments and its powerful people will be used by the evil one to persecute and oppose God's people, God's kingdom, God's plan. He's almost certainly not, he, John, is almost certainly not trying to give us hints about the specific identity of an antichrist to come, as some teach. Uh, John's big point is to call us to endurance, friends, and to call us to faithfulness. Uh, He says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Uh, He's saying, know this, know there's spiritual warfare and battle going on. Know that you, you will be persecuted. That is going to happen. Know that Jesus will win and therefore stay faithful and endure overcome, he says. Whatever happens in the present or in the future, we are to walk with God so that we can discern and flee and fight the presence of evil. And John tells us that God will be with us. And he assures us that evil will not win. God will not let evil have the victory. That's his point when he says that the woman that we read about earlier, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That period of three and a half years, the 1,260 days is mentioned several times in scripture, Revelation 11, Revelation 13. It's also mentioned in Daniel, Daniel 7, I believe. Every time it's a picture of the church undergoing attack, persecution, pressure, being brought to it by the forces of evil. And so that's, that's now. We're in the three and a half year period. It's just a description for now, the here and now, the church age, if you will. Uh, and John's point, uh, John actually says that the church triumphed over him, over the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's the picture of the church, of us being victorious. Now, For the rest of this morning, what I would like to do, I would like to talk about spiritual battle. And I would like to talk about how we're going to fight our spiritual battles. Uh, You know, we, we have to fight spiritual battles all the time. We're fighting one right now. It's called the coronavirus. It's a spiritual battle. It's an expression of evil, destruction, death. Spiritual battles are very real. They've always been very real. They've always, there's always been spiritual battle taking place for the church, for any group of people seeking to follow Jesus. Uh, and amazingly, here's the thing. Amazingly, our individual and collective spiritual battles really matter to God. They are important to him. He cares a great deal about how we fight these spiritual battles. In these images that we've read in these chapters, we see the uh, three common strategies of the evil one as he seeks to oppress and oppose and persecute the church. Uh, In any spiritual battle, the evil one wants to distance us from God. Uh, He wants to shake our faith in him. He wants to discourage us from following Jesus. And he tries to do that using various strategies. The first one that I'll mention that we see here in the text is deception. He wants to deceive us. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, listen to the way Satan is described. It says, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's how the ESV translates this. The NIV says, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Same thing, deception. 
In chapter 13, verse 14, uh, the second beast is being described as a servant of the dragon. And he's described this way. It says the second beast deceived the inhabitants of the earth. That's one of the key strategies that the devil uses, always has. Deception. Uh, Jesus says that when he, the devil, lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who the devil is. This is how the devil works. So here's what will happen in our, in our lives, in our day-to-day existence, in our spiritual battles. The evil one will use various means to begin uh, painting false pictures in our mi- minds. He will use people who say things to us, billboards that we see, pictures that we observe. He'll use all kinds of things to speak messages into us. Sometimes he will even speak to people uh, himself that, that will be all about deceiving us. Before you know it, thoughts begin to occur to us that it seems like they come out of nowhere, but they actually come from the evil one. Thoughts of doubt, you know, you can't do this. Obey Jesus, not in this situation. That'll be way too costly. You don't even believe this stuff. Not like you say you do. Jesus may be a great guy, but a miracle worker, a healer, come back from the dead, God. I mean, come on. How do you know that? Even if he were all of that, does he really have the time of day for you and for your stuff? You don't matter to him, not the way you've been told. You see, that's deception, friends. Those are messages of deception. Those are lies. And those kinds of things are the work of the devil. He's at it all the time. Promoting thoughts exactly like that. They come from the evil one. He's the root. He's the source. He's the father of all lies. And he can be counted on to try to deceive the children of God. It's his stock and trade. That text we just read says it's his native language. And nearly every chain of sin begins with a link of deceit, believing a lie, or choosing not to believe the truth. And so to fight this strategy, I need to see through the lies of the deceiver. And here's what I would suggest. This is just one uh, way to go about battling in this area. Whenever a thought enters your mind that could lead you down a path or in the direction of doing something you know or believe might dishonor God, something toward disobedience, something towards selfishness, discouragement, giving up, depression, whatever it is, ask yourself the question, are my thoughts, are my feelings, are they rooted and grounded in truth? the truth of the word of God. This thought, this scenario, this attitude that I'm mulling over, this this plan of action that I'm contemplating, is it true and is it good? Ask yourself, if I do this, if I believe this, if I act on this, will this honor God? Uh, Will it lead to my being more like Jesus? Does it embody who Jesus is and the things that I know Jesus taught? Uh, What I'm saying is, is wrestle wrestle with truth. That's part of the spiritual battle. If you're thinking, you know, I'm lonely, a little sexual immorality would feel great. It would distract me from my loneliness. Uh, Well, ask yourself, is that true? Is that going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction for you? Is that going to provide real and lasting joy? Is that going to help you grow your character? Is it true? And the answer is no, 
No, of course it's not true. Here, is it true? If I power up on somebody to get my own way and put them in their place, will that really satisfy my need for significance? Will that help me grow in my character? Is it true? Well, no. No, of course it's not true. Is it true if I go ahead and lash out at you in anger, which is what I feel like doing, will that actually heal the hurt that I'm feeling? Will that bring about greater um, uh, relationship and meaning and the depth of relationship between us? Is that true? Well, no, of course that's not true. You kind of get the idea here. Whenever we are tempted to sin, stop to ask the truth question. Is it true? You see, the truth question never comes, not this kind of truth question, it never comes from the deceiver. Only Jesus gets us to ask the truth question, is this really true? It's the question we've got to ask over and over and over. Asking the truth question will get us to examine the lies that come as a barrage against us. It'll get us to examine the lies of the devil. Now, he doesn't stop with just deception, unfortunately. Satan uses other strategies. A second one is the strategy of intimidation. You could call this peer pressure if you want, because it often comes in that form. He wants to intimidate us into sin, patterns of sin. We read this in Revelation 13. It says, people worship the dragon because he had given authority, the, the, uh, he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast. And they asked, whoa, you know, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? In other words, wow, he's impressive. Look at him. Look who follows him. Uh, look what happens when they follow them. Look how cool he is. Look how powerful he is. Who is like the beast? What's the use of standing up to him? That's the thought here. You see, all through these chapters, evil seeks to intimidate us, intimidate the church socially, economically, politically. I think often that the evil one uses deceit to get us to do what's wrong. And he uses intimidation to prevent us from doing what's right. Think about the power of peer pressure in your life. Think about the child growing up who's not athletic, maybe not the best looking, uh, maybe not the smartest, not uh, socially the smoothest. We all know that that child is in for a tough time. Kid culture can be very, very cruel. And so kids get picked on, they get made fun of to the point where a child wonders, does, does anybody accept me? Does anybody care? Do I matter to anyone? Will anyone ever want to have me uh, be their friend, want to do anything with me. And this child, you know, they sit alone in a cafeteria off by themselves or they stand alone on the playground, no one to play with, or they stand alone in the halls of a school and, and they, they even stand on the edges sometimes of activities that happen in churches and youth groups and things of that nature. And they're always wondering, does anybody care? And we can all relate to these scenarios uh, we all have been on one side or the other of those scenarios. And we've all made excuses for our behavior when the opportunity to love someone or to serve someone, maybe someone others didn't love or didn't want to serve. Um, and instead of taking the right course of action, we did nothing because of peer pressure, intimidation. 
Sometimes, friends, the greatest sin in our, uh, sins in our life are not what we do, although those things can be pretty dark. But it's what we leave undone. Courageous words that we could have spoken to someone uh, that just stuck in our throat and never got out. Generous gifts that we could have given that could have made a difference somewhere, but they were left ungiven. Bold witness, something we might have said that would have given honor to Jesus and might have blessed someone else, but it would have come at a cost, a price to us, and we just remain silent. Acts of service that go undone. Words of acceptance, forgiveness, grace, and approval that never get said. All because the evil one whispers, yeah, you, you better not risk it. You're alone on this one. No one's going to agree with you. You're going to look like a fool. This is going to cost you. This will not be a popular move. Who are you anyway? Who are you trying to kid? You're no warrior. There's no role for you to play in this battle, in this moment. You better just stay out of this and stay on the sidelines. And so we do nothing. Intimidation and pressure. I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. Friends, we need to determine, I think, ahead of time. We need to determine now that we will stand up to the intimidator. We need to say, I will see through his deception. I will stand up to his intimidation. I will do the right thing. I will not just follow the herd. I will follow Jesus. We need to make those determinations ahead of time. You know, in scripture, huge amounts of sin involved people who knew better, but they just caved in. That's why Aaron fashioned the golden calf, intimidation, pressure, peer pressure. That's why Israel grumbled the way they did and rebelled to the degree they did in the wilderness. That's why a strong man like Samson gives in to Delilah. That's why Peter denied Jesus three times, intimidation, peer pressure. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, wrote these words. He said, most people want to do the right thing, but they're prepared to do the wrong thing if necessary. He's right. Uh, when they're under pressure, when they're up against it, most people want to tell the truth if you ask them, but they're prepared to tell a lie if they think they need to, to cover themselves, to protect themselves, to promote themselves. Notice the word themselves. And that's why it's helpful if you want to stand up to the intimidator to decide before the pressure comes to say, I will not give in to peer pressure. I will not just do the easy thing. That is not who I want to be. That is not who I am in Jesus. I will do the right thing, no matter the cost. I will, by God's grace and with Jesus' help, stand up to the intimidator. Paul said one time, he's writing to the church at Philippi, I can do all things through, through Christ, through him who strengthens me. And this is one of the things he's talking about, fighting spiritual battles. I can fight battles and I can win them by the power of Jesus Christ at work in me. This too is precisely what John exhorts and warns his readers to do. He says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. He says, if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they, they will be killed. In other words, these things are going to happen to the church over the course of time. He says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Sobering words. 
What John is saying is pressure will come. Persecution will come. Jailings might happen. Even death could happen because you follow Jesus. But you don't have to be intimidated and you don't have to give in. You can reckon with those truths and say, okay, but I will follow Jesus. And therefore I can stand firm. I can endure. I can remain faithful with his grace and his help and his strength and his power all for his glory. And so friends, you know, when you face a situation where you know you'll be under pressure to sin, a lie that could you think get you out of trouble gossip that you think would make you one of the group, sexual compromise, because after all, everybody else is doing it right and it feels good. Um, You know, hiding your faith, the faith you have in Jesus, because that's just the easier road to take. Well, listen, decide before the pressure hits. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna endeavor to be faithful. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to stand up to the intimidator. You see, that is faithfully fighting a spiritual battle. So we've got deception. We've got intimidation. One more strategy the devil uses. And boy, we're all familiar with this one. It's accusation. John says, uh, Revelation 12, he says, a loud voice in heaven declares for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This, This is so ironic. You know, the evil one deceives us and he intimidates us. And then as soon as we give in, as soon as we are not faithful, as soon as we sin, he says, aha, how pathetic you are. Look at you. You call yourself a follower of Jesus, and yet you think nothing of disobeying him. You don't really follow him at all. He he must be disgusted with you right now, always letting him down, always asking forgiveness, even forgiveness for the same old thing. Have you ever heard that voice? If you follow Jesus, I know you have. That's part of the spiritual battle. The accuser says, you are a hypocrite. The accuser says, you are a phony. And if people knew the truth about you, they would hate you. You have no right to serve. You have no right to minister in the name of Jesus. No right to pretend to love God. And boy, we hear that. And man, we run. We run. There is something inside us that is so vulnerable to the voice of accusation. Because at some level... It's always true. It's always true. It's true. I did screw up again. It's true. I gave in to sin, the same sin, again. It's true. I did act selfishly, again. It's true. I did hurt someone's feelings, again. It's true. I did disappoint someone, again. And so the accusation of the evil one makes me want to despair. It makes me want to give up. It makes me want to hide. It makes me want to distance myself from God. And that's just what the evil one wants us to do. And that too, friends, is so ironic because of Jesus. You see, our sins should send us running to Jesus 
He's the only solution for our problems of sin. Now, some of us are living under the accuser right now. And what you need to do in your spiritual battle is you need to silence the accuser. That's what you need to do. And the only way to do that is to remember what Jesus did for you at the cross. When I remember the cross, you see, my focus is not on me. I'm remembering my sins and my failures. Yeah, to be sure, that's why the cross was necessary. Uh, My sins are real. They're undeniable. I can't be a hypocrite about that. But you see, when I see the cross in the cross, I also see the love of Jesus for me. And I see him paying for my sins. And I remember his death is enough, more than enough. And when I remember the cross, the accuser falls silent because he is powerless before the cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ silences the accuser. There is no lie big enough and no intimidation powerful enough and no sin black enough and no accusation strong enough to stand against the force, the power, the redemptive work of the cross. And that's why John says in Revelation 12, they triumphed over him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb. It's the cross. That's the only thing that can silence, really, the accuser. And friends, spiritual warfare is a reality for anybody who is seriously attempting to follow Jesus. The sin in us, the sin in the world, Satan's sin in our direction, all conspire to defeat us, and we will be defeated unless we remember Jesus. Unless we abide in Jesus. He is our all-sufficient weapon to defeat the evil one. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection is what overcomes Satan's lies and intimidation and accusations. It is Jesus who forgives us. It is Jesus who empowers us. It is Jesus who transforms us so that we can fight our spiritual battles and win. And the truth is, friends, Every time you and I resist sin with Jesus' power, every time you and I proclaim the message about Jesus through things we do and things that we say, and we do this with Jesus' power, every time you give a portion of your resources to just generously advance the kingdom of God and you do that with Jesus' power, Every time you serve someone who needs help and you do that with Jesus' power, understand the darkness gets pushed back just a little more. And the light of Jesus' kingdom becomes a little brighter. And the will of God gets done on earth just a little more as it is in heaven. And that's why. That's why, friends, the church is called to struggle to pray, to work, to labor, and sometimes even to die. Because the day is coming. It's just a matter of time. The day is coming when Jesus will 
return. And so John says, hang on. Fight the good fight. Victory is guaranteed. And it's yours. Your spiritual battles can be won now. And even should death occur, they will be won. Certainly. Absolutely. Completely. In the future. Amen. Amen.